Okay, so I'm glad you're here. I want to I want to start. We're in these uh, extremely extremely special days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and um, I just want to uh, to go through some of the ideas of of what's going on right now. So let's let's start with the beginning. You know, these are ten days, and um, it says when God created the world, He created it with ten utterances. And you know, in terms of sort of the cosmic map, we talk about these ten energies, these ten spherot, which are sort of the building blocks of creation. And so we start with Rosh Hashanah and we build to the tenth day, which is Yom Kippur, which is sort of the ceiling um, with an S, the ceiling of all of this energy, the ceiling of this new world that, that God is creating, that we're creating with our prayers and all of the rest. And um, so, so it's an amazing, amazing time period right now. And... Let's begin, let's begin at the beginning with Rosh Hashanah. And I want to tell you a story. It's, it's our custom at the, at the Happy Meeting here in Los Angeles to tell this the first night uh, every year. And so we did it again this year. And we've been doing it for many years running already. And it's a, it's a Torah in the form of a story. It's a Torah that I heard from Reb Shlomo uh, while I was davening on Rosh Hashanah at the Karlovak Show on 79th Street. And it's from the Rishon Rebbe about the nature of the judgment of Rosh Hashanah. Um, and Reb Shlomo said, I'm going to put it in modern terms. I'm going to update it. So what it is exactly. So, so it goes like this. He says, imagine uh, you're on the subway, person's on the subway, and opposite them, they see their soulmate. It's clear to, it's clear to them, that's, that's my soulmate for sure. And they're trying to get up the nerve to, to approach that person. But it's very hard to do. And then finally, they get up the nerve. But right as they get up the nerve to ask for the number, their stop comes. The train pulls into the station. They've got to get off the train. But they're able to get the first three digits of the phone number, and then they have to get off the train. Okay, so now... If anyone knows anything about phone numbers, the first three of the seven digits, the first three digits tells you the neighborhood within the city. Okay? So, this is the way Reb Shlomo told it. So, he, he said, okay, so now you know the neighborhood. So, so what are you doing? You've you, you got to find the person, right? So, you get in your car, and the person's driving, and the person's looking out the window the whole time while they're driving. Trying to see, maybe I'll see this person walking on the sidewalk or coming out of a store or going into a store. Now, what's the problem? They're not keeping their eye on the road. So they're running one red light after another red light while they're looking for their, for their soulmate. And after a certain point, they hear a police siren behind them. And it's, it's, it's the cops, right? And they, they come and they say, listen, one red light, two red lights, but, you know, enough is enough. I've got to take you in to see the judge. So, you know, the person doesn't know what to expect exactly. They're walking in the courthouse. The doors open to the courtroom and they look at the judge and it's the person from the subway. Right? It's the one that they've been looking for the entire time. And the judge looks at them because the judge is so happy to see them. And they look at the judge and the judge says, listen, there's time to judge you, but please just sit down next to me right now. And, uh, 
you know what, uh, we'll make the judgment tomorrow, but right now let's just be close. So basically, the Rishner was bringing this Torah to talk about the judgment on the, on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. The judgment on the second day of Rosh Hashanah is, is a little bit lighter, and, uh, and this is coming to explain a little bit the, the dynamics of it. And, um, you know, let's, let's figure out what this story is about. So, so the one you love the most is the one who's judging you. And the one who loves you the most, that's the one who's judging you. See, that's for a lot of us, the hardest part of Rosh Hashanah is just sort of like the act of being judged. Like, who is judging me? And like, it's very, very hard. But if you know the one who loves you the most, that's the one who's judging you, then then everything goes down much more easily. Um, so just let's, let's go through the particulars of the story for a moment. Um, so the one who loves you the most, the one you see on the subway, that's that's obviously Hashem. And uh, and then what's this idea? What's this idea that you just get the first three digits, but you don't get the whole phone number? Right? Because a lot of us, we're learning just little pieces. You know, I, I know when, when people are younger, they don't have the patience, like you were talking about, not, not being in shul, like running around the hallways or whatever you were doing and things like that. When people are younger, it's, it's very hard to absorb the enormity of what it means that there's a world at all, or that we're alive in this world at all, and that there is a God, you know? And whether you grow up within the tradition or outside the tradition, either way, I mean, each, each side has its own unique challenges. If you grow up within the tradition, everything so, seems so basic and obvious that you take it for granted and you don't understand the meaning or the importance of it. You know, if you grow up outside the tradition, then you're not even being given the basic pieces of information that you need in order to form an intelligent opinion. So either way, both sides have their challenges. So, so growing up, you really, you just get a piece. You get three out of the seven numbers, right? But can you imagine if, if just one number in a phone number is wrong, or like with an internet password or whatever it is, if you're missing a number, you, you don't get in, right? You need the whole you, you need the formula. You need the formula, right? So, so a lot of us, we just get a little piece of who Hashem is, right? And then we spend our time looking. But how are we looking? How are we looking? So we're, we're driving down the street in the neighborhood, right? And we're looking out the window, and we're running one red light after another red light. So what does that mean? What does that mean? So basically... The idea is something very deep, actually. The idea is that we're looking for Hashem. Because that's why we're looking out the window. Because that's, that's our soulmate, you know, in the deepest way. We're looking for Hashem. But we're running one red light after another, meaning we're making mistake after mistake. You see, because we don't actually know who Hashem is and what Hashem is, you see, every mistake, when we do the wrong thing, when we run after the wrong thing, on the deepest level, at that moment, we're really searching for God. And we're really trying to connect with God. But for whatever reason, either because we lack the knowledge, or because we lack the self-control, or just because we haven't been sufficiently touched yet, whatever it is, we're not connecting directly with Hashem. 
So we run after all these other things and we have to take responsibility for those things. We have to say, okay, those are mistakes and they didn't do the right thing and I'm going to try to fix it and everything like that. But I'm saying on the deepest, deepest level, whenever we connect to something, even if we do it mistakenly or wrongly, on a soul level, we're just trying to connect to to God, you know? Okay. So now, what's this idea that after a certain point, the police who have been behind you say, okay, one red light, another red light, but listen, enough is enough, I've got to take you in to see the judge. Because, you see, now, this is very, this is very deep, too. At a certain point, we can form a relationship with the wrong thing to the extent that we actually think that the wrong thing is the right thing. See, I, I want to make sure that we're communicating right now. What I said is, is that on the deepest level, even when we're connecting to the wrong thing in our lives, what we're really trying to do is to connect with God. Okay, that's true. That's true. However, in the here and now level, we can form such a relationship with the wrong thing that we begin to think that the wrong thing is the right thing. Because we've forgotten that we're ever searching for God, or we're not in touch with the deeper soul level that we're trying to connect with God, because that's just on an unconscious level, it's not on a rational level, that all we have is our relationship with that quote-unquote wrong thing. And then we, we begin to think that, that, that that's really what I love. That, it's, that, that really is what I want. So at that point, it's time to see the judge. In other words, at that point, Rosh Hashanah rolls around and it's sort of like, God hits the reset button and says, no, it's me. I'm the one. It's not the cheeseburger. It's me. It's me. It's me. And then we go, oh yeah, of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. That's right. That's right. It's you. It's you. Okay, so... So that's the beginning of Rosh Hashanah. Understanding that, that the, the true desire of our soul, more than anything else in the entire world, is God. And that's what it means to make God king. That's what it means to make God king. Listen, we already know God runs the show. I mean, most of us do anyway. We don't really need to be reminded of that so much. But... But the fact that we want God to be king and that we're glad that God runs the show, that's a whole nother level. That's a whole nother level. So that's, that's the work that we're doing on Rosh Hashanah. Now, I want to say over something based on, based on the chauffeur. And we were talking about this, I shared this on, on Rosh Hashanah at the Minyan, but I want to say it over now so... So we can have it uh, on record, I guess. So this is a Torah. So I'm, I'm, I'm reading to you right now from the words of Rabbi Shlomo. He says, Okay, friends, I'll tell you something very strong. This is a little Zohar, a little Reb Nachman, a little Bes Yaakov. That was the Ishvitzer Rebbe. Okay? It says, it says, it says, that on the great day there will be a trumpet blowing. The trumpet won't be loud, the trumpet will be very soft. In fact, it's already blowing. But you must have good hear- ears. Then you can hear it. 
How will the trumpet sound? It will be the first cry of the baby. It will be the first cry of the baby. And the Zohar HaKodesh says, what is blowing, what is the blowing of the shofar of Rosh Hashanah? It brings back to your first cry. It brings back your own first cry. Okay, so let's, before we go further, let's go over that because there, there were some major, major, major points there. Okay. So the first thing is the idea that the blowing of the shofar when Mashiach comes, the great shofar blast, is actually going to be very soft. So that's actually a surprise to me. I, I would have thought it was, would have been very loud. So here it's telling you it's going to be very soft. That in itself is remarkable. And then it tells you that the way the, 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 the trumpet, the shofar blast of Mashiach sounds, what's it going to sound like? It's going to sound like the first cry of a baby. All right? Now, let's think about that for a moment because that's, a, that's, that's an enormous thought. That means that every single person who's been born, every baby that's been born, and that's all of us because all of us are in that category because we were all babies at one point, and all of us made that first cry too. That when you were born... And you made that first cry. What that was, a little bit, was the trumpet blast of Mashiach. Your first cry was a little bit, a little piece, of the trumpet blast announcing the arrival of the perfection of the world. So that's incredible. That's actually incredible. What that means is, is that every single person is essential in playing a role in the perfection of the world. That's what, that, that's what that actually means. Because your cry when you were born was a heralding of the perfection of the world. How so? Because you yourself in this world are an essential piece in that puzzle to the completion of the world. Unique. Unique. Because every single person that's been born, and this is notwithstanding the, 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 the tradition of reincarnation, because even with reincarnation, it's not the exact soul, I learned, that enters into another body. There's some variation, even if it's a slight variation, there's some variation. So in other words, you yourself are unique in all of history. That's not like a, a rah-rah thought. It's just, you just got to take a moment to go, okay, well, this isn't coming again. You're not, forget about reincarnation, even though we believe in it. You, as you exist right now, never came before, and you're never coming again. So, it's enormous the fact that you exist. It's enormous the fact that you exist. Now listen to this. So the Zohar says, what is the blowing of the shofar of Rosh Hashanah? It brings back to you your first cry. Alright, now, alright, that, okay, that's interesting. So when the shofar blows on Rosh Hashanah, I'm getting my first cry back. 
But what is, what is the meaning of your first cry, right? What does that mean exactly? Besides it being part of the announcement of the perfection of the world, because I play a role in the world, right? What does it mean beyond that? So Reb Nachman explains it. Because I'm reading again, because Reb Nachman, Reb Nachman says, the first cry of the baby is, please God, let me know what I'm born for. The first cry is not because the baby is hungry. It's not hungry yet. It only wants to know, God, let me know what I'm doing here. So, so the call of the chauffeur, the call of the chauffeur is a reminder, is a plea to God to please tell me what it is I have to accomplish. What I'm needed for. What I have to do. And it says here, Rabbi Shlomo says, that the truth, that the truth is, if parents would remember that first cry, they would always know who their children are. But sadly, they only remember the second cry, that the baby is already hungry. Now listen to this, this is really heartbreaking. But you have to know one sweet thing. The truth is, that even the second cry is the same cry. Only the baby says, no one understands me here in this world. That's the second cry. The first cry of the baby is, what am I doing in this world? The second cry is, no one understood my first cry. So the first cry is, God, let me know what I'm doing here. And the second cry is to the parents, how come you didn't understand my first cry? So, so we talked about, we talked about something very important about the nature of Rosh Hashanah. The, the image that I always have is when it snows and it's a fresh snowfall, and I think we've all seen this with our own eyes, or at least we've seen pictures of it, or seen it in the movies, that, that fields of snow that no one stepped in, you know? So that's the world in Rosh Hashanah. It's just pure, and it's new, and it just goes on and on and on and on. And what happens is, is that Hashem makes a mold. He makes a mold of each one of us who we are, so that, that's kind of like you imagine a mold around our bodies almost, right? But then there's something even more beautiful. He makes, the mold doesn't just go to our bodies. The mold also goes to who we'd like to be, right? So it molds that around. And then the mold is even more, more exalted than that because it molds around what we dream to be and what we dream for the world. And so God makes this mold of all of us and that's sort of like that's sort of like the new creation of the world, right? And uh, these ten days these ten days are the days of wet cement. You see, you see, all of us at some point or another have walked down the sidewalk and seen someone's name written into the cement, right? Or a heart or the imprint of a leaf or something like this, right? 
And when cement is wet, it's very easy to just, you take a stick and you can write whatever you like in it. But once it dries and becomes hard, it's much harder to write in the cement. (laughs) You can do it. You can do it. But it's much, much harder. So these days, the mold is still being made. The cement is still wet. That's the greatness of these days. Now let me tell you something. came to me on Shabbos. I was, it's, it's, it sounds like a simple thought, but I, I just uh, got very excited about it. In this week's Parsha that we read, and I guess, I guess we read it during these ten days. We certainly did it this year. Um, I think it's every year. It's Parsha's Hazinu. And there's two very fascinating things. I mean, the whole Parsha is fascinating, but two curiosities in it. There's a large letter He, and it's not just a large letter He, by the way. It's unique in the Torah, because it's the only one-letter word in the entire Torah. It's the only one-letter word in the entire Torah. In other words, this letter He is the entire word. It's the only time that ever happens in the whole Torah. So there's a large he and there's a tiny yud. Okay? Tiny yud and a large he. Now, it says in the Gomorrah, it's actually from the prophet Yeshaya. The prophet Yeshaya says uh, that God created the world with the letters yud and he. The heavens and the earth. The earth is like the he and the heavens are like the yud. Okay? So isn't it interesting that right now, during this time, when the world is literally being created before our eyes, and with our prayers also, isn't it interesting that you've got these two singular letters, this giant hay standing for this world, and this little yud, right? Very striking. Very striking. So, so what does it mean? So I want to say the following. You see, what's happening on Rosh Hashanah is we're davening so hard, we're bringing down all of this energy down from heaven to earth. So basically, the Yud is getting small because we're bringing down all of the heavenly aspect of this Yud down into this world. And the hay stands for this world. So what's happening to the hay? It's getting big. The yud is small because we're drawing down all of the heavenly aspect into this world. And the hay is big because it's receiving all of that divine energy. The air is thick with godliness during these days. It's going on everywhere. Like you just, you can feel it. It's in the air. Not only that. Not only that. But what's, what's striking about the letter hey is, you know, if you can picture it, here it is. You want to visualize it. Got the letter hey right here. So, it's got no bottom. It's got a hole in the bottom right there. So the sages say in the Gomorrah, that this is basically a blueprint for the world. That the wicked drop out of this world. Okay? But then here's the good news. You see this little space between this line and the top of the hay? There's room for them to get back in. 
That's from the Gomorrah. That's not me. That's the Gomorrah. So what struck me was with a large hay, there's even more room for everyone to get back in. And that's these days right now. Because all of the gates are open for people to come back and to just, like, get it together. And the letters in the Torah are literally the blueprint of creation. It's literally what's going on right now. So, of course, it should be reflected in the Torah. And, in fact, it is with this large A. Okay. I want to talk about another concept. Again, we were discussing this at the Minion, but it's, it's such a far-out concept that uh, everyone's got to know it. So, it goes like this. Basically, the Netziva Shalom, the Son Rebbe, he brings down from the Todos Yaakov Yosef. Now, the Todos Yaakov Yosef, if you don't know, was the, um, was the person who wrote down the Torahs of the Baal Shem Tov. So, he's the author of the first Hasidic Sefer, the first Hasidic book, was the Todos Yaakov Yosef. That's just a historical fact. Okay. What he brings down in this, in this book is something very amazing, which is that we actually write ourselves into the book of life or into the other book. Okay? We do the writing. We hold the pen and we do the writing. Now that in itself is, 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 is kind of way out. But the question is, how is this actually done? So Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, Shlita, is one of the biggest rabbis in the world. He's in Israel. He explained it the following way based on the Sefer Yitzira. Okay? And, and what he explained was, was that every book is actually two books. There's the book that the author intended to write, and the book that actually got communicated down on the page. Do you hear that there's a difference between those two things? Anyone who wants to express themselves creatively confronts inevitably that there's a certain limitation to just how much can be communicated. Right? And so, so the author writes the book, but then what gets written isn't necessarily the entirety of what the author had in mind. Now, now there's a further problem. The further problem is that, is that one can now take that book and give their own interpretation to the book, an interpretation that the author never had in mind. Right? Or might even be contrary to what the author thought. You know, I'll tell you something. Having been raised in the public schools of New York City, um, you know, very much the approach to education, and it's a fine approach. I'm not being critical at all. The approach is you read a poem, and everyone gets the poem, and the teacher says, what's this poem about? And someone says, well, it's about this. And then the teacher says, very good. And then... The next person says, well, I think it's about this. And then the, person, the teacher says, yes. Yes, I see that too. That's also wonderful. And everyone's got their own interpretation, and every interpretation is wonderful. That's, that's, that works on the level of poetry, right? 
But when you've got the Torah, then when you read the line that says, um, um, don't eat pork, and one's understanding is, oh, that was thousands of years ago when it gave you trigonosis. But it doesn't give you trigonosis now. So now that's no longer a mitzvah. That's no longer relevant to us today. So now that level of interpretation is, 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 is not correct. Is not correct. By the way, just to address that, that point, because this is what I just told you is, is widely held in many circles, um, unfortunately. And the thing is, is that what a person should know, and it's a, it's a much larger discussion, by the way, but there are different categories of mitzvahs. One of the categories of mitzvahs is called a chok, or chukim. That means that these are mitzvahs that transcend the rational. They're super rational. In other words, God who's infinite created us. So our brains are only able to comprehend a certain, a certain degree. They can comprehend vast amounts, is the truth. But compared to God, only a certain amount. Because God himself made our brain. Right? So there's a certain category of mitzvahs which impact the universe in such a beyond, beyond way that we ourselves don't even understand the rational reasons behind them. These are called chukim. And believe it or not, the laws of keeping kosher, which sound like they should be very rationally based and very understandable, believe it or not, keeping kosher actually falls into the category of chok, which is this level of beyond. So even if it's true that maybe there were certain health scares that may not be with us as much, that's not actually relevant. That's, that's a wonderful benefit to, to, to not exposing yourself to, to, to a food that might be uh, unhealthy. But that's not the reason why we do it, and it certainly shouldn't be the reason why we stop doing it. What I'm trying to say is, is that there is this concept, we, we call the Torah, we say, Torah emet, the Torah of truth. There is a concept of truth, which means that it's an objective truth. Now, while there's an aspect of infinity in the Torah itself, where you'll never stop finding levels, and you'll never stop finding interpretations, and that's part of the glory and the wonder of the Torah, and that's all true, nonetheless, it is possible, amidst the infinite number of levels and correct interpretations that you can give, it is possible to say something that's just outright false and wrong. Right? So this world is a book. Not only is this world a book, this world is the book of life. How does that work exactly? Because Hashem and, and, and the prophets, by the way, refer to this world as a book, as a safer. Okay? God created this world through the Hebrew letters. He spoke the world into existence, utilizing the energies of the Hebrew letters. Right? If you want to think of them as energy wavelengths, or however you want to understand what the letters are. He created the world with them. So this world literally is a book. It is the book of life. Now here's the question. This is what Rabbi Shapiro says. Awesome, awesome thought. 
you who live in this world, we who live in this world, we who are reading the book of this world, we who are reading the book of life, through our existence in this world, through our interaction with all the aspects of this world, are we in tune with the author's intent? Or are we reading our own book? Are we putting our own interpretation on it? To the extent that one is in synchronicity with the author's intent, if we're reading the book the way the author wrote it, that's how we put ourselves into the book of life. An amazing thought. It's an amazing thought. So in other words, I have to look around and I have to say, why is this world here? What is this world for? What am I here for? Let me do the things I'm supposed to be doing. If I do that, blessing comes my way. Life comes my way. I'm literally writing myself into the book of life. You know, I was talking with someone uh, a couple weeks ago. And he was asking me about, uh, you know, if I watch a lot of television or not. And um, I, I watch a certain amount just to try to keep on top of, you know, just what's out there and what's popular and what, you know, methods of storytelling, special effects, things like this, you know, because I, I, I need professionally to have that information. But I was telling him that, that, that in general, that television or the television watching experience for me in general is a very passive experience. Because I'm just kind of sitting there and the TV is just kind of doing its thing and I'm just kind of vegging out, basically, you know? And so, so it's not this active experience. Like I, I, I said, what I really enjoy is actually being involved in life, doing things. And then I, I took it kind of a step further. I said, you know... This whole world, this actual world, is like a television show, in a bit, you know? But you get to be involved with it. Like, God, God is, that's what's going on. Like, 24-7, it's the God show, basically. And you get to, you're, you're a cast member. <laughs> you're in it. You're actually in it. And you get to interact with God, with the world, with change, with all sorts of things. And so the idea that it's real and it's going on and you can be involved and there's this like epic thing going on which is like the rectification of the entire world, the perfection of the world, like, I prefer that. <laughs> you know? N nothing against the other experience. But, you know, if you have to choose how to spend the bulk of one's time to actually be in it. To actually be in it. Can compare. Okay. So, so let's keep on going. Uh, There's another thought, which is, 
this whole idea, I, I, I made sort of a note for myself, and the, the, the headline note was, don't hold on to the rat, right? <laughs> so, so it, it hit me, something about the davening of Rosh Hashanah that really, really is, uh, I think, very striking, because I know when I was growing up, and I don't know if this is true for you, for you guys as well, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur was one thing. Like, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. You know, like, there wasn't like, it was just two days where you were basically locked into this large synagogue, and man, you just hoped you got out alive. You know what I mean? You know, and by alive, I mean without dying of boredom. You know, it's like, it's like, it can't, there, you know, you know, you know this thing where you're like, whatever page you're on, and then you, you turn to the last page, and then you, you, you sort of like squeeze the pages in between, and you see how thick it is, and it's like, you know, how long have I got, you know? So, you know, believe it or not, I think the, the Happy Minion is, is the only show I've ever heard of or have seen that doesn't actually have a clock on the wall. You know, but it's not, it's not as long as it used to be. It used to be much longer. <laughs> now we actually get out at fairly normal times. We, we don't have that reputation, but, but we actually get out at fairly normal times, you know. So anyway, but there is no clock on the wall. There is one on the thermostat, but yesterday at, uh, it's impossible to see unless you put your nose right to it. Yesterday at, um, at about 6.30, I think it said something like 3 o'clock, so... <laughs> Yeah, so to the extent that there is a clock there at all, it's hidden and it's incorrect. So anyway, um, so why am I bringing this up? Uh, This idea that on Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah is actually a very different holiday than Yom Kippur. It's a very different holiday. And one of the biggest differences... One of the biggest, biggest differences of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is on Rosh Hashanah, we don't talk about all the mistakes that we've made. You'll see on Yom Kippur, a lot of the davening is actually spent, you know, banging on your chest and going down laundry lists of all of the things that we've done wrong in order, basically, to make sure that we've done tshuva on those things. You know, it's not like, I'm so terrible and here's documentation of how terrible I am. It's sort of like, Basically, the sages set up a system where they said, okay, this is basically all you could have done wrong. So just go through this list, and if you go through this list, you're going to end up atoning for anything that you may have messed up. So that's just a good way of looking at it. And also, they're all pretty much in the plural. So if you didn't do it, someone else did it. So, and since we all share one soul, so you, know, you can kind of give them a lift by doing tshuva. That kind of gives... Them a lift too. But what's striking to me is that on Rosh Hashanah, it would seem to me that if I'm standing before the judge, like, you know, you read this in newspaper accounts of like trials and things like that. The judge gave him X number of years because they saw that he really regretted his actions. And so he lessened the sentence and made it good. Right? So wouldn't you think that you would be doing all of the chest banging and atoning? on Rosh Hashanah? Because if you're going to get the sentence on Rosh Hashanah, I mean, basically, the, the, the final formulation of it is on Yom Kippur. 
But wouldn't you think that all of that chest pounding would be done on Rosh Hashanah? Because then the king could see, you know what, that person really regrets all of their mistakes. They're really serious. They want to be better. I'm going to give them a better year. That, I mean, that's logical to me anyway, that it would go like that. But interestingly, there's no mention of it at all on Rosh Hashanah. Zero. Zero percent. In fact, I'll tell you how far Chabad goes. When you say Avinu Malkeinu, um, we say uh, the very first line of it. And while I just find it for you, I'll tell you this, that Chabad actually leaves out this line because it's basically more or less the one mention of our wrongdoing and they don't even want that in there. Okay? So, here it is. We say, Avinu mokenu chatanu lefanecha. Our Father, our King, we have sinned before you. That's the first line of the, of the Avinu Malkenu. And we don't dwell on it. We say it. We don't dwell on it. Chabad doesn't even mention it. So, again, just to emphasize how much it is that we're not mentioning our mistakes. Now, the question is why? And the answer that I'd like to suggest is, what we said was that on Rosh Hashanah, God is creating this brand new world. And He doesn't want us to hold on to our own negativity and to our own flaws and to continue to define ourselves by our own imperfections. God's saying, just let it go. Let the newness in. Let the newness in. There will be time to do the other stuff. There will, time, there will be time to fix the things that we've done wrong. But right now it's about newness and a new start. Don't get into this whole mindset that I did this and I did that. So what's this whole idea of letting go of the rat? I mentioned it last week. When a person goes into the mikveh, it's a purification process. The Rambam says, what if a person holds on to a rat while they're underwater in the mikveh? Does the mikveh work? And the answer is it doesn't work. Because you're holding on to tuma, to impurity, even in that purified space. And so the, the newness, the purity, doesn't have a chance to kick in. So on Rosh Hashanah, God says, let go of the rat. Let go of it. It's a brand new world. You know what? You made mistakes. I know you made mistakes. But now's not the time to, like, focus on this. Right? Just let go of that aspect. And I'll tell you, even it even goes further, I think. You know? Because I noticed there's something called Hataris Nadarim. Hataris Nadarim is a, an annulment of vows. Canceling out of vows. Interestingly, and I have to do some more thinking about this. Maybe we'll talk about it on Yom Kippur a little bit. We've got Kol Nidre which comes right before, you're supposed to do it like before Shkia, right before Yom Kippur. So, that's also a different type. It's a, it's, it's a different idea. I'm, I'm, I have to study it more before I can make real distinctions between the two. But you've also got basically a can- canceling of vows right before Yom Kippur. And interestingly, we're doing Hataras Nadarim, which is sort of the big official canceling of vows, right before Rosh Hashanah. Same, same dynamic going on. Okay? So what's this whole idea with Hataras Nadarim? Why did the sages institute it right before Rosh Hashanah? So first of all, just so that we understand something. You see, there's a, 
there's a very... I'd like to talk about it more at length and, and, and in future times, God willing, after I have a chance to learn more about it. But, you see, God gives us this amazing ability, and it's called the ability to make vows. And we're not really supposed to do it so much. There's certain instances when one's supposed to do it. If one is basically in a life-threatening situation or something like that, then it's good to make a vow. But other than that, we're really not supposed to make vows so much. In fact, in the Jewish world, you'll often hear people say, Bli Nader. That's, that's designed to stop them from making a formal vow. Because, you see, God, and this is, this is an amazing thing, God gives us the ability to actually create mitzvahs. You see, if we use the formal declaration of a vow we have put a, a, an obligation on ourselves that is a mitzvah to do. And now if we don't do it, we really have messed ourselves up, basically. You see? So a person has to be very careful with this. But now, listen again. We're answering the question, why are we saying why, the canceling of vows right before Rosh Hashanah? And what does this have to do with the idea that of the newness of the world and that God is making a brand new world? Okay? So we're almost, we're almost ready to finish up. One more point, just so, just so you know. It's, I think, a fascinating level within this, which is that one can make a vow without ever uttering a single word. The way that happens is if one does an, a particular action three times... Right? Like, for instance, um, I've uh, shared with you before, it's a very good custom, and I urge you all to do it, to have a hot drink after Shabbos. The Gemara says that's a refuah, it's a healing. And my explanation for it is, you know, um, in Kashrus, heat transfers essence. Okay? If you have something hot and wet, actually, it, it, so if, if I have, let's say, a hot, wet, non-kosher fork, hot, wet, non-kosher fork, and I put it down on my kosher plate, it will make the plate not kosher. Because heat, hot, wet heat, transfers essence. Okay? So, so what's this idea? How is it a refua to have a hot drink Saturday night? So what I want to say is that it's taking, because it's hot and wet, right? It's taking the essence of Shabbos and it's transferring it onto the week. Right? It's searing it onto the week. So that's the refuah. Because the neshama misses Shabbos, right? And it gets kind of like, ah, gets like a transfer of Shabbos onto it. Okay? So let's say you have three weeks in a row, you have your hot drink after Shabbos, and you don't say Bli Nader or something like that. Believe it or not, that counts as a vow. You have made a, n- a Nader to, to have a hot drink, let's say Shabbos. So if you do something three times in a row without having in mind that you're not taking it on as an obligation, that, that according to the Torah, constitutes a vow. Very interesting. You never spoke a word, and yet you made a vow. Okay. So, so what is a vow? What is a vow? Now listen carefully, because we're going to wrap it up. A vow is something that obligates me to a future event. Does everyone hear that? Because let's, to keep with that example of the hot drink, that means that every Saturday night, it's not Saturday night yet, 
Every Saturday night, I'm tied to this future event through this vow that I made. Is everyone here? Or if you say to someone, I will do that for you, I vow to do that thing for you, that means that that activity, which I haven't done yet, in the future, I am now tied to a future event. Right? Okay. Right, now we're ready. So what happens, why are we saying this? Erev Rosh Hashanah. Why are we canceling out these vows? Erev Rosh Hashanah. Because God is making a brand new world. And all of these things that we've obligated ourselves to in this new world, God says, yo, just step aside. Let me make my new world. <laughs> Wipe those things clean because it's stepping on my new world, right? My tracks of snow, right? The, you're putting your footprint. <laughs> Even before I've made the new world, you're putting your footprints in my new world. Just wipe out those vats, okay? You're not tied to those things anymore. We're starting again. We're starting again. We're starting fresh, okay? So again, again, not to hold on, not to hold on to the rat, not to hold on to our imperfections, not to hold on to our old self. But now, so that's Rosh Hashanah. And now, and now we're transitioning toward Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is the most awesome, awesome, awesome day. You know, everyone thinks that it's the heaviest day of all because I'm fasting and because I'm in shul a lot and because I have to go and because... You know, one of the things that I've noticed, unfortunately, it breaks my heart. It used to be that people used to be Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur Jews, right? That that was a certain category of, of, of people. Now I've noticed that a lot of those people are just Yom Kippur Jews, you know? That even Rosh Hashanah has kind of fallen away quite a bit, which is kind of heartbreaking. But um, anyway, people will be surprised to learn that it says in the Gomorrah that Yom Kippur is one of the happiest days of the entire year. It's absolutely, absolutely like a festival. A festival in its greatest sense. And everyone should know that the day... So, so, so people ask a question. If it's a holiday, and it's a festival, and it's so happy, where's the meal? Right? Because you can't tell me all that. You know, I'll buy that if you feed me. You know, if you're not feeding me, then it's just words, okay? So, so, so there's actually a mitzvah to eat all day, the day before Yom Kippur. Not to make a pig out of yourself, right? But all day. And in fact, some rabbis, in order to do this, would have a candy in their mouth all day, so they always had something in their mouth, like a sucking candy. Right? So that they would be fulfilling this, this idea. So the day before Yom Kippur is actually that day where it's a mitzvah to eat. And it's actually the holiday meal of Yom Kippur is the day before Yom Kippur. That is the holiday meal of Yom Kippur. And now listen to this. You want to hear what a great deal this is? The rabbis say, if you eat in the proper way, like, you know, you eat... You know, the shame, you know, in the, in, the, in the name of the holiday and all the rest of the day before Yom Kippur. God counts it, you ready for this? As though you fasted two days. That is, the, that is remarkable. 
So you're eating, and you're eating the best stuff, and you're celebrating, and it's counting as though you're fasting, simultaneously. So each, each day is given to the, giving to the other day. In other words, you're getting the eating of Yom Kippur without actually eating on Yom Kippur, and you're getting the fasting of Yom Kippur with, on the day that you're eating also. So it's like double eating, double fasting. Ah, that, if only that were every day, right? That would be the best. But that's like a special opportunity that we have. So why is it such a happy day? So you don't need long explanations. Because God is wiping our souls clean. Simple as it is. Simple as it is. But, a big PS on that. Which is, not the stuff that we do to each other. That stuff, you can't cry your eyes out and all the rest and think that the guy who you stole 20 bucks from, you know, is all of a sudden taken care of. Got to give him back the 20 bucks. You know? And, uh, and so... So, so this world is a little bit of a tricky place. It's a little bit sneaky. You know, um, and, and we'll just close with this thought. You know, there are a lot of uh, stories, like fairy tales and things like that. Even Rebbe Nachman uh, tells a story that, that uses this uh, device, where the king disguises himself as a peasant and then walks among the people to see, like, how they're going to treat him, and how people really treat each other, right? But you don't know. You don't know it's the king, because he's disguised. He looks like everyone else. So, these days are disguised like every other day. <laughs> these days, especially these days in between, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, you got, you're waking up in the same bed, you're going to the same office, or you're going to the same supermarket, or your car looks the same, or bicycle, whatever it is. But don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. These are the most exalted days of the entire year. You know? And uh, a little goes a long, 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 long way. You know, I'm just thinking, in Vegas, they have these slot machines where if, let's say... Let's say um, three oranges pays, I don't know, I'm making this up, pays a dollar. You put in a quarter, you get three oranges, it pays a dollar, right? But if you put in four quarters, and then you get those same three oranges, it pays off even more. In other words, in other words, the more you put in, if, it, if, if you hit your... Your, your jackpot, your payoff becomes exponentially greater. So what I'm saying is these days look like normal days. Don't fool yourself. Don't allow yourself to be fooled. Every effort that you put in in these days is going to pay off exponentially. Okay? And just I'll just leave you with this uh, last thought that I mentioned before before we blew the chauffeur the second day, 
I heard it uh, in the name of uh, uh, Revitson Sure Smiles, who, by the way, has a, a new book out from Feldheim. just came out, if you want to check it out. So, this is something that was an exercise for when the chauffeur was being blown, but it's something that applies equally to, especially these days. Um, which is, she, she said to her students, I heard, you know, after 120, after we all live long, full lives, happy lives, healthy lives, um, think about three things that you'd like, that you would hope, or that you would like people to say about you at your, at your funeral, you know? And uh, that's a great exercise. What three traits do you want to have been remembered for? And then, once you figure that out, try to figure out what you can do in the here and now in order to, ex- to exemplify those things. What you can do to do those things now so that you can become the person that you'd most like to be. Okay. It should be a good, sweet year. Yeah.